our study in the book of Joshua, a series that we put on hold for the holidays last month. So just to get you up to speed, if you weren't here, after 40 years of Israel being in the desert of wandering, Moses had died and God called a new leader named Joshua to go and lead his people to enter into the land that he had promised her forefathers to, to Abraham and that he had been reaffirming that promise. And so now Joshua was to lead the people of Israel, God's people, into the land of Canaan, the promised land. Now, in order for the Israelites to take possession of this land God was giving to them, they would have to fight. They would have to defeat the Canaanites that had been living in that land for a very long time. And God told the Israelites to go and destroy all the cities and to leave no survivors, to kill them all. So if you were here a couple of months ago looking at these passages, you might remember that some of these texts were, were quite, quite dramatic in the description of how God's people were, were killing off all of the Canaanites. And so just to remind you, in case you're just not picking up the series here for the first time, The Canaanites were not innocent. They were not an innocent people. They practiced extreme sexual perversions. And they were very cruel people to one another and to others. And they even sacrificed their own children to the god Molech. And so God's judgment that he had been waiting on for hundreds of years, according to Genesis, for many years, God was patient with the Canaanites, but they refused to repent. They continued to oppose God and His people. And so God sent His judgment upon their evil in the form of the Israelites taking the land. And so what we looked at so far in Joshua is that God led them to defeat the mighty city of Jericho, to then defeat Ai, and even five armies of the south that had joined forces made a very large army, attacked Israel, and God made the sun stand still as they defeated this very large combination of five different kingdoms from the south. And God defeated them. And so what you're seeing in this, in Joshua, verses chapters 1 through 10, is you're seeing that God is holy. God is revealing His holiness and how He judges sin. That's who God is. He's a holy God. But the the very same section in Joshua 1 through 10 also reveals that God is kind and gracious. And He's a very merciful God. And when people repent of their sins, they turn away from their sins and, and they turn to God with complete trust, He is faithful to forgive. He's so gracious. And so He forgave Rahab. He saved her, even though she was a Canaanite. And he saved the Gibeonites who abandoned their old way of life and turned to following the one true God. And so God was gracious to save people from Canaan who would trust in the one true God. And so you see that God is gracious. And so you're seeing a full vision of what God is like in Joshua. And so just to get you further up in the story in chapter 10... What happens is Joshua goes systematically, after he defeated these five kings, he goes into the south, and he goes city by city, 
and he destroys every one of these major strongholds in the south. Now, the story picks up and goes a little bit faster after chapter 10. Up to, up to now, the first 10 chapters, the stories are long with a lot of detail. But once you get to the end of chapter 10, it picks up steam and it goes a lot faster. There's a lot less detail because it's covering much more ground and showing how Joshua was conquering the entire land. But in chapter 10, it does say that he struck with the edge of the sword. And that phrase is used over and over with every city. He struck them down with the edge of the sword. And it says, and left them with complete destruction, is the language used there in chapter 10. Now, it's easy to lose sight when, when you're reading these texts. It's easy to lose sight of what God is revealing here. Because you're seeing destruction of these cities and God judging the Canaanites and giving his people the land. And it's so easy to focus on that. And we need to take a step back just for a second and see the full picture of what exactly God is revealing about who he is and what his purposes are. And so remember what God is revealing here is that everything in Joshua, just like every book in the Bible, but we're looking at Joshua now. Everything in Joshua is pointing to Jesus. Everything in Joshua is pointing to and fulfilled in the person, the life, the work of Jesus, which is why this series is called Joshua, the Gospel in the Book, I'm sorry, Victorious rather, the Gospel in the Book of Joshua. And so we're talking about having victory, and what we're seeing here is everything in Joshua is pointing to the work of Christ in the Gospel. And his name says it all, because the name Joshua in the original Hebrew was Yeshua. Now, if you take that name Yeshua and you translate it into the Greek where you have in the New Testament, that is translated Jesus, which in English we would translate Jesus. And so Jesus and Joshua have the same meaning. Both names mean the Lord is salvation or the Lord saves. That's what Joshua and that's what Jesus Means We just looked in Christmas season in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, and we read how an angel went to Joseph and said, And you will call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. And that's what Joshua means, Savior. And so what you're seeing here is everything Joshua is pointing to Christ. Jesus is the final and better Joshua who has defeated the enemy and has secured a land for his people to enjoy God together for eternity, to have rest from all of the evils of this world. And so Joshua's pointing to the ultimate reality. It's a shadow pointing to what's going to happen for believers one day who will be in the ultimate promised land, in the new earth, heaven, forever with our victorious king who has defeated sin and Satan and death. And for those who trust in Christ alone, that is the future that awaits us. And that is what Joshua is about. It's about victory that Christ has won for us. And so we're to walk in that victory. It's Christ's victory. He defeated the enemy. But because of that, we can now experience victory in our daily lives. And so if you want to live victorious, well, well what does that look like? Well, today, on this Friday morning, are you desiring victory over an addiction? Are you needing victory over selfish or evil desires that maybe you don't ever say out loud, but you know that they're in there? 
Would you like victory over sorrow or depression or anxiety? Do you honestly want to walk in victory in this life? Let's pick up the story where we left off last time. Joshua chapter 10. And let's honestly beg God's Spirit to be active in this room and in our hearts. And may He accomplish a mighty work of transformation as we read His Word and as we apply it to our lives. Joshua chapter 10. We'll pick it up with verses 40 through 43. And they will be on the screens if you don't have your Bible. Joshua 10, 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev, the lowland and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all of these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So you see, Joshua led them to defeat the entire southern half of Canaan. It says, because of the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So the Lord himself was fighting for Israel. So what you're seeing here is this victory was God's work. Just like it is today, spiritually, it's the work of God in our lives. But they had to trust and obey God, much like we have to honestly trust and obey Him, so that we can then experience victory in our daily lives. Now, if you keep moving into chapter 11, we won't read it all because we don't have enough time today. We're covering a lot of ground today in chapter 14. So a lot won't read all of those four chapters, but I'll give you the summary. On your own time, you can go back and read it. Chapter 11 is a powerful chapter where it describes how all of the northern city-states, so all of these northern kingdoms, they see, they hear of Joshua defeating the entire southern kingdoms. And so now what happens is they're getting afraid. And so they create an alliance. And all of these northern kingdoms get together. And they go and they, it says the mass, it says a huge horde in verse 4. And they go and they attack the Israelites. And then verse 6, again, chapter 11, verse 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. I'm going to give them all over to you slain. I'm going to kill them all. He says, Don't be afraid of the enemy. The enemy will not defeat you. I know it's terrifying. It's scary. It looks bigger and stronger than you. A great horde, it says in verse 4. Don't be afraid. I got this. There was never even a doubt at all. And so what happens, it shows in this chapter, how the Israelites defeat them. It doesn't say here how long it took, but we will find out in our home groups this week, we'll do more study, go a little bit deeper into this, and we can see that it actually took them quite a while. It took them several years to defeat these northern kingdoms. Yes, God did it, but they fought for a long time. God gave them the promise, but it wasn't instant. It didn't happen right away. In verse 18, same chapter, it says, so Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. That one sentence 
embedded in chapter 11 is very important. And again, we'll look at this week how it was actually seven years. So this long time was seven years that they fought against these northern kingdoms, battle after battle. And in the end, they were victorious over this powerful enemy. Now, what happens to us at times is we expect to battle against our enemy, to battle against our sin, and we expect it to be instantaneous. We think that we're going to battle, and very quickly we're going to overcome whatever is ailing us. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. And if you're here today and you've been battling against a particular sin and, and you're wondering, well, why, God? Why, why have I not overcome this yet? We'll talk about that more this morning as we keep looking at this. But know this here at the outset. It's a lifelong battle. You're going to be battling until God calls you home. Following Jesus is every single day, sometimes every single hour, moment by moment reality. We continue to trust him every day to deliver us from evil. He doesn't deliver us instantaneously. And we'll talk about more of that later, but I'll say this. It's because he wants us to trust him more. Chapter 12, then, is a very important transition chapter. Chapter 11 ends all the fighting. And so, if this were a movie, all the fight scenes would end at chapter 11. Now, chapter 12 is the middle of the book. And so, the second half of the book is completely different from the first half of Joshua. So, all the fight scenes happen and end in chapter 11. With the end of chapter 11, what you have is all the major cities are defeated. Yes, it took years, but every stronghold, every big city has been defeated. And chapter 12, then, is a summary It summarizes the entire conquest on the east side and west side of the Jordan River, and it describes the northern and southern kingdoms and everyone that fell, and the 31 kings that were defeated are listed by name in chapter 12. It's a synopsis of the first 11 chapters. And then chapter 13 picks up, and from 13 to 19 is one unit. So those chapters form a single thought with one theme. And the theme from chapters 13 to 19 is dividing the land among the various tribes of Israel. And so there were 12 tribes, and each one got their allotments. We'll look at that next week. Now, let's read 13, verse 1. It says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains very much land to possess. So he says, Joshua, you're not so young anymore. He's like, you're not as young as you used to be. You're, you're an old timer. You're, you're a seasoned saint, as we would say. Because no one's old in our church, right? No, actually, there is no one old in our church. It's interesting. But the reality is that Joshua was old. And God says, there's much land that still has to be acquired, to be possessed. And he says, I'm going to give it to you, but you need to go take it. Now, again, in chapter 12, it describes all the kings that fell. So all the major cities were defeated, but most of the land was still occupied by Canaanites. But then God says, that's okay. Go ahead and divide all 
the land according to the various tribes. There was still work that had to be done. Let's read verses 6 and 7. We'll leave the second half of verse 6 and then 7. Same, same chapter. And God says, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half the tribe of Manasseh. And so what you're seeing here, the second half of cha- or the, the rest of chapter 13 describes two and a half tribes that had their inheritance, their land, on the east side of the, jo- of the Jordan River. And so it was the tribe of Reuben, of Gad, and half of Manasseh got their land on the east side of the Jordan River. And the other nine and a half tribes were given land on the west side of the Jordan River. And so chapter 13 describes the allotment for these two and a half tribes on the other side of the river. And chapter 14 to 19 describes all the other tribes and what lands they received. We'll look at that bulk of that text next week, and we'll see how important that is and why it matters to us that they were given specific lands. And I assure you, it matters to you and me today. But what you're seeing here is God says, here's your inheritance. I'm giving it to you. And then God promises victory. He says, I will drive them out. And he says, and yet much land remains to be taken. So what you're seeing here is there's the promise of victory. There is the gift of the the land inheritance. And yet there's responsibility for them to actually go and to acquire it. And so the way it would work is now that all the major cities had fallen and the land would be divided by each tribe, each tribe would then go into their little region and complete the conquest. They would go and drive out the inhabitants that was in their particular inheritance. And so all the major fighting was done, but there was still more to be done. They had to still go and completely settle their land by driving out the Canaanites that continued to live there. But see, here's what happened. Let me read to you a recurring theme from chapters 15 through 19, where the land is allotted and each tribe is supposed to drive out the inhabitants, the Canaanites. Listen, hear what it says. This is chapter 15, verse 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive them out. Hear that. They could not drive them out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. And so they were unable to drive them out. And so the tribe of Judah failed to drive out the Canaanites. If you go to chapter 17, verse 12, the people of Manasseh, another tribe, could not take possession of those cities. But the Canaanites persisted in the land, dwelling in the land. And so again, another tribe could not drive out the inhabitants that were living there. And you go to chapter 18, verses 2 and 3. This is Joshua speaking. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you? He's saying, God already gave you the land. He already promised it to you. He promised you victory. How long 
are you going to sit there and not go grab hold of God's promises? How long are you going to sit down in your apathy and not go and drive out the inhabitants and obey God? They weren't doing it. There's this recurrent theme that all these tribes did not accomplish what they were supposed to do. What you're seeing here is failure. Failure. God promised to personally drive them out. And yet, he's saying, here it is. It's yours. Just go get it. Cling to God's promises. But they didn't. What you're seeing here is God's sovereignty. And so when you read in Joshua, God says, I will do this. I will drive them out. That is God speaking as the sovereign God, all-powerful, in control of all things, who has promised that he will defeat the enemy. That's God's sovereignty. But then you also see human responsibility. Because then God says, go get it. It's yours for the taking. Go get it. Go take it. Go lay hold of my promises. They needed to obey God in order to see the promise fulfilled. So you're seeing this beautiful tension that our minds can't comprehend, but you're seeing the sovereignty of God, and you're seeing man's responsibility, and both are taught in the Scripture side by side, and our finite minds can't comprehend the infinite reality of our God. We know that He is sovereign, and yet we're called to obey Him. The Israelites here were apathetic. They thought to themselves, you know, we've been fighting for a long time. All these battles, all this bloodshed, we're, we're tired. We're just tired of fighting. We've come far enough. Partial victory is good enough for us. We're in the land. All the big cities are defeated. Yes, there's Canaanites still living with us, but, you know, it's good enough. They were complacent. They were content with partial victory. That apathy had set in. And apathy is defined as a lack of interest. So apathy is a lack of enthusiasm or a lack of concern. They were apathetic to the things of God. We can be apathetic just as easily. Do you desire? I really mean this. Do you desire to have a life full of victory that is marked by purity, a life that is marked by generosity, a life that is where you're a sacrificial servant to others, where you have truly healthy relationships with other people, where you have a zeal for the gospel, a true love for Jesus, victory over habitual patterns of sin? Do you want that kind of a life? Because that's what God wants for you. We must overcome spiritual apathy. Because spiritual apathy will rob us of victory. So by God's grace, we must overcome apathy. Because apathy is what opposes our victory in Christ. Let me give you the main idea from this somewhat large section. The thought, the truth for this morning that will govern our thoughts is that we must overcome spiritual apathy in order to experience victory. And so it's on your screens if you're taking notes. We must overcome spiritual apathy in order to truly experience victory. And by the way, any of us and all of us can be apathetic to Christ and his gospel. 
Sadly, due to the sin in our own hearts, every one of us leans towards drifting into apathy. All of us naturally drifts into it because of our sin. We must fight against it. I mean, this is common sense to us. It really is. Because say you're a young lady and you, and you got a really nice gift card for Christmas two weeks ago. And then you go to the mall and you buy all these new clothes. And you're just so excited to wear your new clothes, right? Or no? Yes, right? You're like, yeah, I'm going to be trendy. I have all these new clothes. It's so exciting. What happens six months later with those trendy, exciting new clothes? They're old and out of style and not cool anymore and faded. And you're, you're apathetic. You're, you're not so excited about them anymore. But guys are no better because you'll go buy that expensive new device, that new iPhone, whatever, 6 or 13, whatever's out now, right? And, and you're so excited until the next one comes out. And all of a sudden, your, your zeal, your excitement for your device is just, oh, it's waned. You've drifted into apathy towards your purchase. But that new job, you were so excited, your dream job, you finally got it. And then a year later, you're like, I hate my job. What happened? You were so zealous for it. You were praising God for the job. And now, now you, you hate Sunday mornings. Apathy. It's natural to all of us. We drift into a, a loss of interest and enthusiasm and concern for everything that we care about. It can happen in your marriage. It's so easy to be apathetic towards your wife or your husband. Take them for granted. It's so easy to drift into apathy, to drift into spiritual apathy, where all of a sudden God's word is not quite so exciting, worship gatherings aren't quite so wonderful as they used to be, and all of a sudden you're seeing everyone's flaws and all the problems, and we become apathetic because of our sin. It's natural for all of us to drift into it. We must overcome it to be victorious. And in the midst of a nation that was steeped, that was swimming in, that was immersed in apathy for God, there was one man, there was a shining example in Israel who was not apathetic, who had a zeal for God. One man who would not give in to the failure of all of his peers, who would not give in spiritual apathy, is one man believed the promises of God. He laid hold of God's promises, and he alone truly experienced victory here in the conquest. And as I read about this man, it's inspiring to me. I just love reading about him, his remarkable obedience, and his name is Caleb. Remember Caleb? He was one of the 12 spies that was sent by Moses into the promised land 40 years earlier. Caleb, along with Joshua, was the two spies that said, we believe God's promises. We believe God could give us the land. And it was the other ten spies that said, no, God's not able. No way. Canaanites are too strong, too big, too fortified. We're grasshoppers to them. But Caleb said, no, no, we can do this. And now many years later, Caleb, 
requests land, promised to him by Moses. And so Caleb is given, he's in the tribe of Judah, he's given a region called Hebron. And let's read about Caleb and see what God reveals about him. He's in chapter 14, verses 6 through 15. Again, chapter 14, 6 through 15. And the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since that time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed them. And he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenesite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. And the land had rest from war. Caleb was the man. 85 years old, still strong, holding on to God's promises. He says with resolve, I love this. He says, the Lord will be with me. He knows God is with him. And he says, I shall drive them out. I will do this. Not maybe, not hopefully, not inshallah. He says, I will drive them out just as the Lord said. It was the Lord's will that they be driven out, and he knew that he could do it because God was with him. And so he receives the land of Hebron, and if you go one chapter later, chapter 15, verse 14, it's not on the screens, but I'll read it. It says, And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahiman, Talmai, the descendants of Anak. We will look in our home groups further on who these people are and and the significance of Anak. But what you see here is that he drove them out. And and that there is one phrase that's used twice in the whole book of Joshua. One important phrase. The phrase is, and the land had rest from war. And both times, it's used once right here in chapter 14, verse 15 in reference to the land of Hebron, and it's used once earlier in chapter 11, verse 23, where it referenced the same 
land, Hebron. And so the only time in the whole book of Joshua that you see the phrase, and the land had rest from war, it's the land of Hebron where Caleb lived. That's the only place in the whole conquest, the only person that was faithful to completely drive out the Canaanites, completely obey God and grab hold of those promises and see victory in his He overcame the apathy and experienced great success. Let's take some time here and let's apply this to our lives today because we could end right here and be a great story, but we want to see how this applies to you and me right now here today. Let me give you some thoughts. Number one, the causes of spiritual apathy. As we look at this one section, chapters 10 through 14, it's revealing the causes of Apathy. So it's, it's on the screen if you're taking notes. The first cause is exhaustion, being tired. And so exhaustion can lead you to apathy. The Israelites were tired, tired of the fight. And so they were apathetic. Can you relate? Can you relate to exhaustion? Are you tired this morning? Are you physically or emotionally really tired? Exhaustion can lead on the path of spiritual apathy. Have you endured maybe a long battle with sin and you're just tired from the fight? Do you feel like you're just never going to overcome that sin? If you're tired today, you're not alone. It's so easy to think that God doesn't care. You can feel yourself defeated. And then you can find yourself not caring quite as much about Christ or his gospel as you once did. And so exhaustion is one definite cause of spiritual apathy. Number two, a second cause of apathy is forgetfulness. It's just to be human is to forget. So forgetfulness is another cause for apathy. Israelites forgot who God was, and they forgot who they were in relation to that one God. So they forgot who God really is, and they forgot who they are. They, they, they forgot something very important. They forgot that God is holy. They really forgot that. They, they forgot that God had saved them from slavery. They forgot all of the victories that they had already seen because of God's good hand. They, they, they forgot that they belonged to God that they had been saved and they belonged to Him. And they forgot that the conquest was about God's glory. It was about God defeating the enemy, God displaying His glory in doing so. It was bigger than them. This mission that they had was much bigger than they were. They forgot their mission to display the glory of God by obeying Him, defeating the enemy, and God gets the credit. And the nations would recognize that there is a God in Israel. It was about God's glory, not their comfort. They forgot. They forgot. And we can forget as well. They forgot about God's promises. They forgot that God said, I will drive them out. I will give you this land. It's yours. Go take it. I am with you. They forgot. And because of our sin, we all forget. 
we forget who we are. We forget who God is. We forget that we're redeemed, forgiven, that we're regenerated, that we have the Holy Spirit of God living in us and He's sanctifying us. We forget the joy that we can have in Christ. We just forget. We get gospel amnesia. We forget. And every single time that we choose sin over Christ, at that moment, we don't believe the gospel. At that moment, at that point in time, we don't believe that Jesus is better. We have forgotten. So forgetting can lead you to be apathetic to Christ. But there's a third thing here that you see in in Joshua in these chapters on causes of apathy. The third one is sinful desires. Just plain, simple, self-centered, sinful desires. Because you see that in Joshua 17, verse 13. It says, Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Now that's not on your screens, but I just read it there. Again, Joshua 17, 13. It says, They did not drive them out, but why? They put them to forced labor. They were supposed to drive them out. But they thought, well, we don't really want to obey God. We want to improve the economy. The economy is very important. And so we want to have free labor. Because no labor cost means more production. It means more income. Better for business if you don't have to pay for your labor. The word here is also is tribute in some translations, which is referring to collecting income. So what you're seeing here is the Israelites chose money over obedience to God. They wanted more income. They wanted more ease, more comfort, more money. They thought that that was better. And so at the root of all spiritual apathy is sinful desires. Every time. Every time that we find ourselves a little bit cold towards Jesus or his word, somewhere deep inside at the root is a sinful desire. And so this morning, are you struggling with maybe, again, this coldness towards Christ? Or maybe you're a little bit too comfortable with a sinful pattern in your life. Are you content with spiritual mediocrity? Somewhere deep inside, we need to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, why? Why has apathy set in? What is the cause? Let me give you the result. Let me give you the result of spiritual apathy. The result is spiritual defeat. That is on, on, on the notes here as well. Is we're talking about the result of what happens when we get apathetic? Inevitably, defeat is around the corner. And so the result of spiritual apathy is spiritual defeat. And so what you see here in Joshua is they failed to drive out the Canaanites. They settled for a partial victory. And what was the result? If you read the rest of history with judges and then even the kings and beyond that, the, the evil, pagan, Canaanite way of life entangled them. In their entire history, entire Israelite history, they were ensnared by the ways of the Canaanites. They were, they, they were stuck they were enslaved spiritually and morally to the Canaanite religions that were very evil. And so it led them to eventual defeat. So when we find ourselves not caring very much, 
That is a red flag. It's a warning sign to check what's going on with me inside. Why don't I care? Why don't I want to read the Bible? Why, why do I have to drag myself to worship gatherings? Why do I not want to go to a home group? Why do I not care about serving others? Why am I so comfortable with this sin? Why? Why am I so, so just blah spiritually? Or maybe it's even worse than just blah. Why? Why am I apathetic? We have to ask ourselves, well, what are the factors and which of these causes is, is affecting me? And it's a warning sign. And if we don't take heed and turn around and run back to Christ, what happens eventually is spiritual defeat. So let's look lastly here on victory. We need hope. We need to see what the solution is. So what is What is the path to victory over spiritual apathy? And we see it in Caleb. Three times the text says that he wholly followed God. Some translations capture that and it says wholeheartedly. And so what what is the victory over spiritual apathy? Wholeheartedly following God. That is the solution. No apathy when we're following him wholeheartedly. Now, practically, what does this look like? Well, first of all, it's trusting. It's trusting God. Caleb believed God's promises. Caleb truly trusted God, even in the uncertainty. Some of you in here, you went through hard times. A lot is unknown and unsettled and uncertain. And you have to trust God with it. We trust Him even when we don't understand what's going on. When we know God has called us to something and, and we're pursuing Him and then things really aren't working out and it's hard and you're confused and it's painful. In the uncertainty, you trust Him. You trust that He is good. Like Caleb did. But it's not just trusting, it's also treasuring. It looks like trusting and also treasuring Jesus. It says holy, wholeheartedly, all of, all of Caleb's affections and desires, wholeheartedly following God. And so he was valuing God and God's glory more than anything else, more than his comfort. And so do we truly treasure Jesus more than our achievements or our possessions? Do we really value him? Do we really treasure Jesus? Now, how does this work? How do, how do we get our hearts to trust Him more and to treasure Jesus more? And the key is focus on the glory of the gospel. We read earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in the worship gathering, a powerful passage describes the gospel and he says, wake up, sleeper, and let's not be asleep, let's not be apathetic, let's pursue Christ And then he says in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. So he's saying, how do you overcome apathy? How do you overcome it? He says he focused on the gospel. He's focusing on how we're, we're saved because of Jesus who died for us. Focusing on this it just unbelievable, overwhelming gospel is what begins to change our hearts and the apathy begins to fade away. We spend time reading His Word, enjoying God's presence, remembering our guilt, 
when you read God's word and you meditate on it, focus on your guilt because we all have it. Be honest with God about our shortcomings and our failures. Don't hide it from God. Focus on your guilt and then focus on God's glory, on how Jesus died for you and you are forgiven and redeemed and anointed and sealed by the Holy Spirit. You remember His sacrifice and how much He loves you. You remember how God has a good purpose for you, how He's given you promises, and you just lay hold and you grab on to them. And so are you exhausted today? Are you really tired? You beg God to give you strength, and His Spirit will sustain you. Today, are you, are you struggling with this forgetting, where, where, you, where you forget how much joy you can have in Christ? Through His Spirit, having His presence, He can remind you. And you won't forget quite as much of how much joy Christ gives you. He can remind you. His promise to defeat the enemy is fulfilled in Christ ultimately. So it's going to happen. The enemy is going to be vanquished. We'll be with him forever. He'll remind you if you focus on him. And if you're struggling with sinful desires or just feeling defeated spiritually, his spirit can change your heart. And he can give you victory over temptations and patterns of sin if we will truly trust him and treasure him. And believe me, personal experience on this, when we're not trusting him and not treasuring him, obedience doesn't happen. Obedience comes from treasuring and trusting Jesus. When that's happening, obedience will follow. May we lay hold of these promises to God wants fullness of his promises for you and for me. He says, here it is. Take hold of it. I have this for you, my son and my daughter. Hold on, because I'm holding on to you. So as we close, I ask you one question. What are you really holding on to in life? Father, we thank you for giving us this time together to read your word to be so convicted and so encouraged by it all at the same time. We're so undeserving. And yet you are so good and so gracious, compassionate. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the salvation you've given to us. Father, I pray that we would focus on you. Anyone here in this room that has never repented of their sins, never truly trusted in you, may they do so today and experience joy that they've never experienced before. Father, help us to focus on you and fight off apathy. May we not drift into it. May we be zealous for you. May we serve sacrificially, give generously, tell others the good news, and live lives that reflect your glory. I praise you, for you are worthy. I praise you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.